1: this is wheel bearings i'm dan roth and i'm sam abu al so welcome to episode 67 of uh, wheel bearings um we'll talk about what we're driving in a moment but sam you're actually going to go out uh to the to the west coast so you're very brave um because everybody knows the east coast is best um i say that as i sit here in uh massachusetts so (laughs) <laughs> Suck it. Um, but anyway, you're going out to to be on uh, This Week in Tech again.
2: I'm going out to do a whole bunch of stuff next week. Uh, I will be on uh, This Week in Tech on Sunday, uh, which is, what, uh, May 13th? Uh, That's Mother's Day, yes, for first. those of you... Following along at home Yeah, for the the live show Um, And then uh, I'll also be doing a Leo Laporte and I will be doing a segment With the uh, Cadillac CT6 um, Demoing Super Cruise And taking a look at Super Cruise Um, Has he tried Super Cruise before? He has not tried Super Cruise As far as I know
1: Okay, that should be interesting because, you know, I mean, he's he's so into tech and so many other realms. It'd be interesting to see his take on it.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll be I'll be curious to see how he responds to it, Uh, because he does own he owns a Tesla Model X Um, and, you know, he's got autopilot and he's sometimes uses autopilot. Um, although his wife absolutely refuses to use it anymore because it's, it has tried so many times to pull her into, uh, the center median of the highway. Uh, so she just doesn't even bother anymore. Um,
1: yeah. Near death experiences. will do that.
2: Yeah. Occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I'll be, I'll be on Twitter, uh, with Leo and, uh, and Florence Ion and Harry McCracken on Sunday. And then, uh, I've got uh, some meetings on Monday and Tuesday at a a few different companies in the Bay Area. And then uh, Wednesday and Thursday, I'll be at the uh, the Connected and Autonomous Vehicles Conference uh, in Santa Clara. Um, and I'll be uh, chairing the, the sessions on Thursday um, So uh, if you're around in, uh, in the Bay Area this week um, And you've got something interesting to show me wh- That you're doing in uh, the autonomous or connected vehicle space uh, Ping me and, and uh, we can set up a meeting
1: and I will be doing nothing interesting and nobody can come and ping me. I mean, you can <laughs> ping me, but you can't
2: find me. Yeah, I, you'll you'll just ignore it anyway.
1: Uh, I'm, I'll probably respond, but I'm just... I, I'm in, uh, an, an international man of mystery. I need to maintain the the veil of secrecy.
2: Yeah. I'm sure that's not too hard.
1: No. <laughs> not at all. All right. Well, let's talk about the cars we're driving. Um, you... Let's see. Uh... Man, let me, let me pull up the spreadsheet. Stand by. Uh, so y- you were in, you want me uh, to just tell you what I had. Uh, well, I was trying to make it better, but you know, just, just go ahead. I now, I now I see what you had and I want to hear about it. So go ahead.
2: So yeah, I had the, uh, the latest product from uh Jaguar Land Rover, uh, which is the, um, the, uh, Land Rover Range Rover Velar, um, which I guess you could just call it the Range Rover Velar. You don't really need the Land Rover in there, but anyway, it's it's the new mid sized uh, model from uh, Range Rover uh, that slots in above the the compact Evoque and below the the classic Range Rovers, and uh, it's it shares its platform with the Jaguar F Pace, and so it's actually you know same wheelbase and roughly the same overall size as the F Pace, um, but it's. where the F-Pace is clearly very much uh, a road-going SUV sort of thing. the the Velar, is, you know, has all of the the things that you would expect of a Land Rover product. You know, it's designed for. I mean, it, it works great on road, but it's it's really designed for off road running. Um, you know, if if that's what you want to do. Um, although I suspect that the vast majority of people that buy this thing will never take it on anything worse than a gravel road.
1: It, yeah, it might go on like a you know a driveway with pea gravel on it. You know, out by yeah. where the horses are kept.
2: Yeah, that, you know, that sort of thing, you know, so <laughs> it, and, it, and it will do just fine there. You know, it'll also do, you know, I'm sure it'll do great in in winter weather. You know, uh, when you get into some deep snow and stuff, it's got plenty of ground clearance, uh, unlike an Alfa Romeo Giulia. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's actually a, you know, as SUVs go, I I think it's, it's really good looking. I, I really like the way it looked, especially I, you know, the one like, I had.
1: It's. It's hard at this point for Range Rover to make a bad-looking vehicle. Their design language is just so, uh, so refined. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very clean. It doesn't need a lot of ornamentation. You know, the, the Evoque was one of those like it looked really good, but it was it was kind of dreadful uh, from the inside. The seating position was weird and stuff. At least I thought it was. Um, but the yeah, the Velar is just it's really pretty. And uh, does it replace the Range Rover Sport?
2: No, so you still have okay. the Range Rover Sport, uh, you know, which is a little bit bigger, uh, certainly taller, you know, taller profile. Uh, you know, the Sport is kind of the the cut down, short wheelbase version of the classic Range Rover. So you got the the big classic Range Rover, uh, the Range Rover Sport, which is which is kind of a short wheelbase, higher performance version of that. Um, and then, uh, the evoke is at the entry level is the compact. And in the middle, you have the Velar, um, which is, you know, clearly, you know, lower profile, you know, it doesn't have the tall roof look of, you know, the classic Range Rovers. Um, it's sleeker, you know, and it's good. It's the, the proportions are very similar to the F pace, which is good. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. No, that's but, it's, right. but it's an, it's an even, you know, it's a cleaner, sleeker design, uh, you know so you, you you got the combination of those those proportions of the f pace you know the sportier proportions um with the, the the range rover the range rover design language very smooth slick um the one I drove was uh this uh really dark red color and then everything else was blacked out um and it looks really sharp in that say, combination
1: that, that sounds really really good looking so what did it have for for a powertrain because it has the ingenium engines right
2: the four right. cylinder and the the sixes Uh, yeah so you have the the uh, the v6 uh, the supercharged v6 is the one option and then um, you can also get the two liter uh, turbo diesel Uh, but the one i had had the two liter uh, gas uh, uh, direct injected turbo four-cylinder with 247 horsepower
1: i'm trying to remember if i've had a jaguar vehicle with that engine in it maybe i have I I can't anyway.
2: Yeah, how is it? it? It's it's a good engine. I mean, it's 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 a, it's strong. You know, it, it feels like it's you know got two hundred and fifty horsepower, um, and you know it's it's more than adequate for this one. You know, it's certainly not um, you know as strong. You know, the the when I drove an F pace, uh, I had the F pace R. Um, which has the the three liter supercharged V six you know which has three hundred and eighty horsepower. It certainly didn't feel as strong as that, but it, it it had plenty of performance you know. So there was I had no complaints there. Um, you know the interior of the uh, of the Velar just looks gorgeous. I mean it's a beautiful design. Um, you know the seats are comfy. There's plenty of room uh, even in the back seat. Um, the 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 only complaint really I had. About the cabin of the Velar was the the infotainment system. So it's got a, a two screen setup, um, you know, two touchscreens. Uh, you know, so it's a very clean design. You know, it's got the the pop up rotary shift knob, just like all the other JLR vehicles have these days. Um, and you've got rotary controls for the uh, <clears throat> for the the volume, the audio volume, and for the uh, climate controls. But then you've got these two touch screens to give you access to all the other various controls. The upper one that's in the dash um, actually you know, it when it's uh, when the car is off it it drops back in and it lays flush with the the surrounding instrument panel. But then when you start the engine, it tilts up a little bit. But the the problem I found is uh, when you're wearing polarized sunglasses, the the displays that they're using on that upper screen uh, at any angle that anywhere in the rain, you can actually go into the settings and you can adjust the angle you want that upper screen to come up to. So you can have it lay back flatter or or sit up more, more vertically. At any of those angles, I was getting distortion looking at that upper screen, uh, which is where it displays the navigation info. So the bottom screen, that's a little bit lower down in the center stack, um, is where you get various controls so you can dive into um, the controls, you know, to turn on things like the massaging seats and uh, the you know cha- the terrain management system. You know, if you want to, uh, you know, set it to. Uh, change the traction control for driving in deep sand or snow or, um, mud, you know, and all kinds of different stuff. And so that that's where all of that stuff is buried is in that lower screen. But the upper screen is where you see the navigation and the audio controls. And I was, you know, I was getting a distorted view no matter what angle I set it at. Um, so that's, that's not good. Um, but other than that, it all, it all looks really pretty. I mean, it's, it's really nicely executed. And as long as you're not wearing polarized sunglasses, it's fine. Uh, aside from, you know, being touchscreens in a car, which are inherently a bad thing, no matter who does them or, you know, what kind of displays you use. But that's a whole other issue. Uh, one thing that uh, from a functional standpoint, the, probably the, the one complaint I had was with the, uh, the driver assist Stuff yeah and this is something I always try out in every vehicle I have to see how it behaves The adaptive cruise control was fine uh, But the the lane keeping System was really Rough you know if you started to drift Towards the towards the edge of the Lane uh, There would be a, a you know Very distinct rumbling in the steering wheel but then it You know it also kind of tr- kind of try to jerk The car you know back towards the Center what it, w- it wasn't very well calibrated And it didn't it didn't, it never really tried to hold the center of the lane. Um, so, you know, it was really more annoying than helpful. Um, but aside from that, you know, it's, it was a really nice vehicle to drive.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't, I remember gawking at the interior of one, uh, down in sort of the, at, at an event, um, where there, there was one hanging out in the in the garage and, uh, it looks pretty cushy in there, uh, like it should, um what's it cost wise what's it going for uh
2: the one i had was the the mid range se model so there's uh, or actually the it was the se r dynamic model um with the, the the 2 liter gas engine um and it came out to about $75,000
1: I mean, that's a it's, lot of money, but it's, it's not.
2: Well, as range, yes, it's a lot of money, but as Range Rovers go, it's actually pretty reasonable. I mean, it's a lot less than, you know, a classic, you know, classic Range Rover, you know, can easily, you know, run you well over a hundred grand.
1: Right. But um, it's also like smaller and it's on a different, different platform. Yeah. And, you know, so you are trading yeah. something away.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, compared to the F-Pace, um, you know, the the suspension tuning, you know, is a little bit softer. You know, you can feel that, you know, the suspension's been set up, um, you know, to provide more, more wheel articulation capability. So if you're going to go off-roading, uh, you know, if you want a vehicle, if you want a, a British SUV, you know, with some performance that's in this size class, you know, if you're only ever going to drive it on the road and you want something that feels more, with better uh, driving dynamics on the road go for the jaguar if you want something that's going to be able to actually handle going off road and you know pulling you know going over logs and whatever else you might find on an off road course then go with the the velar um you know and it you can definitely feel the difference in the driving dynamics between the two the the Jag is definitely set up more stiffly this one you know you can feel there's, there's more cushiness in the ride quality um you know there's a little bit more compliance um you know when you when you turn into a corner uh it doesn't feel as stiff it's not you know it it's not that it feels mushy or anything but you know it it definitely feels more compliant uh, like it's been designed to absorb, uh, you know, the basically Michigan roads for one thing. Right. Uh, so it, it, it does well from that respect.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it's hard to sort of complain. It's one of those things like even as a, an auto rider where you get kind of jaded to these things, it's, it's hard to complain about a week in a Range Rover. Generally, they're, they're usually pretty nice.
2: So, yeah, I mean, it's an, it, they're nice. You know, they're a nice place to spend time. You know, I mean, they're they're not, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're my cup of tea. You know, generally, they're they're not something that I necessarily want to spend time with. But overall, you know, it's they're you know, they're they're really nice vehicles.
1: Yeah. They, they know their target market quite well. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's I guess the sort of last question that I have about is like, who is it? Who is it for? And it's certainly, it's it's for the folks that are considering the F pace, or um, you know, something by Mercedes or BMW. You know, it competes with all those those upper echelon brands. Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, you know, I think it's for somebody that might have considered, you know, something like um, you know, an Audi Q five um, or Mercedes GLE um you know or a BMW X5 but you know perhaps once you know i think compared to any of those it's got a it's it's hard to imagine saying this about a you know Range Rover but it's got it's got a much a, a sleeker more modern appearance than any of those i think yeah and at the same time also sportier um but i think it you know it's uh i would you know although i didn't take it off road um you know i would guess that it's a lot more off-road capable than any of those. And I think, you know, if you wanted something, you know, in that size and performance class, you know, that's, that gives you, you know, that gives you a true luxury feeling compared to any of the um, you know, any of the Germans, you know, I think it, it definitely, um, it gives you that, you know, while providing off-road, real off-road capability, you know, I think really, you know, perhaps the most, Maybe maybe the you know the the best um, alternative to this might actually be a Jeep Grand Cherokee, a high end Jeep Grand Cherokee. Hmm. Um, I, you know, because the the Jeep the Jeep is also gonna you know it's probably gonna match the off road capability of this thing. Um, you know, it's it's probably not gonna feel quite as it's not gonna feel quite as premium as this thing, but it's it's probably the the best alternative to it.
1: Yeah, I, and I'm certain that. One of the sales, you know, one of the, one of the selling points of it is that it's not a BMW or a Mercedes or even a Grand Cherokee, you know, it it is, it's a, it's, it's a Range Rover. And, um, they have really brilliantly, you know, now that you mentioned how surprising it seems to be saying the styling is sleeker and modern and all those, those very nice things you just said about it, um, it it is a little crazy to think about that because for for decades range rovers were these boxy things you know the first two generations of them looked like they were chopped with an axe out of like you know yeah um a, a pla- you know just a a block of wood or something um and and now they they really have turned into this this lifestyle high high prestige brand that is is uh sleek you know they've they've reinvented themselves and, and jaguar has to a degree as well they They've really changed it up. They don't have any retro, really, in the uh, in, in the the Range Rover lineup. Anyway, I, there's not anything retro that I can sort of put my finger on. So I like that. That right there is kind of a masterstroke, and it happened kind of quietly. It sort of snuck up on us.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, this is kind of it. it really started during the the latter part of the Ford era. You know, in the in the late the late two thousands, you know, probably around 2007 or eight, I think, you know, kind of the last generation of Range Rovers and Jaguars that were launched um, when, when they were still owned by Ford. Um, and then, you know, since they were, since being acquired by Tata, you know, they've, they've really carried that forward and, and really extended that, that theme, you know, for both brands, you know, so they, each brand has its own distinct look um, you know, and, you know, clearly, you know they're they're doing a lot of hardware sharing under the skin, um you know particularly for for this one. this I think this is really the only one where they, they actually share a platform uh, between the two brands. Um, you know, all, you know, the other Range Rovers are, you know, you distinctly Range Rovers. They're, you know, there's nothing from a platform perspective that's shared with Jaguar. Um, you know, and the rest of the Jaguar cars don't really share anything with, with the, the Land Rover or Range I Rover thought, models. But
1: the, um, yeah, that's true. But The en- engine
2: powertrains are shared. There's
1: that, but the, the F-Pace and the XE and the F type are all they all share yeah. a bunch of stuff.
2: Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, so the, yeah, they they do you know they do share you know, a lot of stuff um, like suspension but, you know, th- and this is,
1: design and stuff. Not
2: necessarily. Yeah. So th- this is this is the only this is the only one from the, the Land Rover side of the house that really shares much with any of those. Um, you know, the Evoque is a front wheel drive model so uh, i guess it, i guess the evoke probably shares some some platform with the uh the new e um the e-pace the the smaller uh, oh, crossover yeah, but from jaguar right.
1: now i'm gonna have to go to the, yeah. the wikipedia and
2: but but still you know, you know that each one has its own distinct look and style you know and you know you look you look at anything from the range rover lineup you know and you 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 can instantly know yeah that's a range rover you know, so even even though this is a much you know lower profile, sleeker vehicle than the classic Range Rover, it's still you know, there's still enough commonality. There's enough design DNA there to tell you that, yeah, this is part of the same the same family. Yeah. And, you know, what one of the things that, you know, this this is the first one, the first Range Rover that I'm. That I can recall that has uh, retracting door handles. Um, you know, so when when the when the car is locked, you know the, the door handles. Oh, that's right. Flush.
1: I remember that from when and, I looked over one. I, I so that is. Are we going to see that as a more common feature?
2: You think? Probably.
1: I'm not sure how to There's, feel uh, about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean. It, Certainly, you know it. It, it does you know, contribute to that sleeker look. You know, have you know, not having the door handles sticking out. You know, it, it's, they sit flush. You know, with the rest of the, the surrounding bodywork. Um, but of course, you know that's one more thing to go wrong. Um, you know, during the time I had it, you know they they worked fine. Um, you know, you walk up to the the thing with the key in your pocket, um, and as you approach it, you know, the door handles automatically, uh, pop out, you know, so you can open the doors and then when you walk away, they'll, they'll shut. Um, but, um, you know, it, again, you know, it's a thing that, you know, do we really need that? You know, I think it probably contributes a little bit to aerodynamics, you know, certainly makes it a cleaner look, um, you know, it. I had I had less issues with the door handles on this car than I did. You know, when I the couple of times I drove Tesla Model S's that have very similar door handles. You know, these never failed to open up for me. I mean, you know, whereas the Tesla did.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's a. I'm sensing a theme. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure it makes a marginal improvement in Arrow, as well. Like, okay, fine. It, I, it's I think neat.
2: you know. In this case, I think they did it more. For the aesthetic yeah, and for the aerodynamics. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I'm just trying to make a case for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, so I had a couple of things cause it's been a little bit, uh, a little bit of time. So the, f- the first, the first car I had, uh, or I can talk about was the, the Genesis G 80. I don't have a ton to say about it. Uh, we've talked about it before. Uh, other than the, that, that is a v- hell of a car. Um. It's just it's it's a big luxury sedan that drives really well, even when you shut the uh, the traction and stability control stuff off. It's got a naturally uh, good handling, riding chassis, which the, the first generation of Genesis kind of was a little bit more hairy. Uh, and so they did a lot of work, just chassis development work on the, the G80 and, and it paid off. It's a great driving car. Um You know, if you're considering like what the first couple of generations of Lexus LS were, I really feel like that's what the Genesis is at this point. Um, It's it's really, really well done. And I thought it was going to be like a sixty thousand dollar car. And it was like (laughs) forty (laughs) five, which is so impressive to me. I'm sure they're losing money.
2: Uh, I wouldn't be so sure of that.
1: Uh, okay, I mean I, I'm impressed if they're not losing money uh, to establish the brand by selling this car for forty five thousand dollars. Because you know, inside and out, the, the styling. First of all, uh, the the Genesis styling is is done by you know guys who styled the the usual luxury suspects for for a couple of decades. So it's not it's not like they uh, suck at it. They're <laughs> They're really good at styling great looking cars. And, and like all of Hyundai and Kia's stuff looks looks fantastic. Uh, you know, the design, it, regardless of price, it's just it's great design. Uh, and and this car is no exception. Um, and inside and out, you know, the, the materials are really, really, really good inside. It it fe- everything you touch feels expensive. Uh, even the, the switch gear and stuff has, has like this. Um, it's like I, I want to say it's flocked. Uh, I don't know what the proper like industry term is, but there's like a coating on all of the switch gears, So it feels really luxurious to the touch. It may actually be flocking. I forget what they call it, but it it's uh, it's like a little extra layer of softness on it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything operates really nicely. The the materials again, they just like it's, it's good stuff uh, and it's put together really well. It's designed really well. So It's kind of hard to not be impressed with that, especially for the $45,000. So, you know, I really, if the badge is not your, your first concern, I don't understand why everybody who's looking for this kind of large luxury sedan just isn't shopping for Genesis cars only.
2: Well, that's the, the, you know, you just answered your question. I I I mean, you know, (laughs) more often than not, people that are in this segment are shopping the badge as, as much as anything else. Yeah. You know, it's the, the, the badge, you know, the brand brings with it a certain degree of status regardless of how good the car, you know, or the vehicle, you know, today might actually be, you know, there's, there's a lot of inertia that goes with certain brands and, you know, building up that degree of inertia for, a uh, you know, essentially an unknown brand, which is what Genesis is at this point, even though, you know, it's been, you know, a decade since the original Genesis debuted, you know, it's still, you know, that brand is still a relative unknown, you know, and, and if anything, you know, most people, you know, if they, if they know Genesis at all, they probably still associate it with Hyundai, you know, which is not (laughs) what you associate with a luxury brand. Uh, So, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, I mean, look at how long Cadillac has been trying to, you know, rebuild their brand, you know, for nearly 20 years now. And they're still struggling to be taken seriously, you know, uh, you know, at the same level with, you know, BMW and Mercedes Benz and, and even Lexus. Uh, So, you know, for, you know, an upstart like Hyundai, you know, to, you know, first to bring the the original Genesis sedan and and coupe, and and then to break off Genesis as its own separate brand, um, you know, is is really challenging.
1: Yeah, well, and they they did. I think it was a misstep, but it was kind of it. Maybe that's on the outside looking in. I think it was a misstep for them to launch Hyundai Genesis, and then try to establish Genesis on its own. But I, I think the reasons for that were. They, they just didn't have the money and they wanted to get a toehold and, you know, they knew that launching a a brand straight up like that was going to cost a billion dollars. And, you know, to, to do it with that first car, such an untested, uh, thing was much more of a gamble where if they kept it Hyundai Genesis, they had a, a better way to shut it down maybe without, uh, losing so much, um, so there, there is that work that they're going to have to do. And it's just like, that's just patience to wait it out. So that Genesis does become a thing. There's, there's, you know, they, they've got to consistently build better cars for less money to, to get over that hump. You know, it, it if it's competing with an S class, it has to be better than an S class, at least in, in some respects and certainly for value. Uh, and it's got to do that for 10 years before it, Genesis is just going to, you know, be as, you know, as uh, going to roll off the tongue, I guess, but it, it's just tough. I mean, how long has Ram been Ram instead of Dodge Ram?
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, people still, you know, they look at a Ram truck today and, you know, they still think of it as a Dodge, Yeah. even though the new Rams, you know, they, they no longer have the crosshair grill, you know, that, that everybody still thinks, you know, when they see a Ram truck, they still think of Dodge Ram, you know, at least they recognize the Ram brand. They just don't think of it as a standalone brand as part of the Fiat Chrysler family. Now, you know, they they still think of it as part of Dodge, um, which is something that's probably going to take you know, another generation to get over that. By which time, you know, it may well have been reabsorbed back into it, or or Do- <laughs> or perhaps maybe Dodge will just cease to exist. Or by then. yeah, we will
1: sell off the truck brand because that's uh, yeah. one of the money factories over there. I mean, you know, you know who is confused by it is my ten year old because he'll see he, he'll see the cars, he'll see like an Avenger with the Rams head on it, and then will be like, "Wait, that's a Ram, but there's a car." Like, yeah, Dodge, Dodge used a Ram as their symbol for for decades. So he's, he's new enough at it that he doesn't have that decades of sort of programming. Dodge Ram goes together. Um, so, I mean, there's not a whole lot, uh, I guess in, in a, in a good way, there's not a whole lot of, why, why,
2: why why would, why would you subject your young child to even uh, seeing an Avenger?
1: Um, you know, sometimes you just, do do you you hate your kids? Occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) uh no so we were out in um the lovely metropolis of springfield massachusetts uh last weekend and um springfield has a a wide variety of of vehicles and um avengers were around and so he saw some avengers um (laughs) we didn't have much else to do so we were we were like gawking at cars
2: and so, so instead of taking him to see an Avengers movie, you took him to see some Avengers.
1: Yeah. We had the dog with us. I'm sure this is uh, fascinating, but like I, I was not about to leave the dog like in the, in the car for a whole movie. Um, okay. Just, it, he probably would have been fine, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so we went and found a park. If you're in Springfield, Forest Park is lovely, although it got really crowded in the afternoon. I didn't realize that. So anyway, uh, the, the uh, the, the last thing I, I have to say about the Genesis is that the V6 like you, there's no need to pop for the V8 if they still even make the V8 or the turbo or whatever just just the regular. I,
2: I think they still I think they still offer the, you can still get the five liter V8.
1: I love that engine. It's great, but you don't buy it. don't just don't buy it.
2: <laughs> like, did you have the normally aspirated V6 or the, the the twin turbo? I had the
1: naturally aspirated V6, and it's plenty. It moves okay. this thing around with lots of authority. It sounds great. It's smooth and unobtrusive. Otherwise, like that is a great engine.
2: No, I agree. There's
1: there's no need for any more, um, and certainly I'm sure the three liter twin turbo would be be nice. I I would like
2: to try. Well, that. yeah, the the sport, you know, the G80 sport with the the twin turbo V6 is is great. You know, I, and I would actually take that over the the five liter V8 any day.
1: Yeah, but that V8 sounds so good. They did such a good job yeah.
2: on that V8. <laughs> That's true, but
1: but it's it, right. The 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 V6 with the turbos is probably more flexible and stronger overall, and just generally better to drive but it has doesn't have the rhythm the rhythm it's about yeah, the rhythm
2: that's that's true uh, <laughs> but it's got it's got torque lots of torque that's true that's true
1: um speaking of something with with impressive torque uh the other thing i'm driving which i still have is the the chrysler pacifica hybrid and so we were talking about it a little bit last night and uh i think it's a worthwhile discussion um you know it's it, it's a hybrid minivan it's so they win because nobody else has one, and I, I think it's it's like a, a market that's ripe for a hybrid, and it's a plug-in hybrid. So it'll go for I think I got like twenty six miles out of the battery before it kicked into um, just straight up hybrid mode, which I, I thought was pretty good for a vehicle that large and running on the highway. Uh, but it, it's a it's a good foray into to hybrids, and the you know the fact that they designed stow and go into the platform means that they can put the batteries in there. So you, the only thing you lose is stow and go. So like, that's, that's well, really smart.
2: for the second. Yeah. The second row stow and go, right. you still have the, the third row. So if you, you know, if you don't need the third row, you can you know flip those back into the, that, cavity in the the uh the back of the van and then you have a a huge cargo area behind the second row
1: which is like that's how it came to me and i flipped the seats up tonight to use the third row and i was impressed at how easy it is to deploy those seats you just you you pull on one strap the the seat pops up you pull on the other the seat back pops up and you fold up the headrest and, and you're done that you know the pacifica is it's just a great family vehicle and a hybrid version of it i think uh for, for the way i'm using it i'm not using it quite right because uh, I'm, I'm commuting too far with it i'm doing you know 90 miles round trip which is just too much to really get the full benefit of the the plug-in part of it it, it still gets better fuel economy than a the, than a regular pacifica would but it's it's not the best hybrid it's better as a as a battery electric
2: yeah and and that's that's the thing about the the pacifica hybrid you know they, they call it a hybrid, but, you know, they, they kind of hide the fact that it's actually a plug-in hybrid, you know, and it's got, you know, if, if you're driving it around town, you can easily get over 30 miles of, of electric driving range. And given the way most people actually drive, you know, driving, you know, two thirds of people drive, you know, less than 35 miles a day. Um, if, if you do nothing more than just plug it in at night and unplug it in the morning and then you don't even think about it, you just drive it. You, know, you can do almost all your driving without ever using any gas, which is amazing for a vehicle like that, because minivans, you know, typically are not that fuel efficient. No. Yeah, well, and this, then, this thing is, is pretty amazing. The,
1: right. I mean, minivans are not that many, but, uh, you know, you're I would be pleased yeah, to get low 20s out of a regular just plain minivan. Low, low 20s would be good because um, they're big and they're heavy and they all have pretty powerful V6 engines and. All kinds of stuff in them. Um, so I'm getting I think right now the average is about 31 half miles per gallon overall. so that that's that's not bad. I did most of my morning commute or two thirds of my morning commute on on batteries. I, I could have found a place to plug it into 110 at work and I would have been able to do you know two thirds of my commute home on batteries, maybe maybe less because I don't think on 110 it would charge as, as fully. Uh, it, it does take quite a while to charge off one ten. Um, but you can also plug it into two twenty. So
2: yeah, and you know, the the other thing about uh this vehicle is, you know, for for people that have minivans, you know, if you've got a couple of kids and you're hauling them around in a minivan, you know, one of the things a lot of families, you know, will do is like you know, in the summertime you take a road trip for a vacation, you know, go visit the grandparents or whatever. And if you've got an EV, you know, for those, you know, just a straight up battery electric vehicle for those trips, now you've got to start thinking about planning ahead, you know, planning your route, you know, to make sure that you have places to stop along the way to top off the battery, depending on how far you're going. And, you know, with this thing, you can drive it around electrically most of the time. And, you know, when it's time for a road trip, you know, or, you know, to, you know, take everybody to the. To the beach in the summertime, or whatever it might be, uh, you know, you just drive, just drive it like any other Pacifica. And you know, when the battery runs out, you just keep on going, and you know, you stop at a gas station, fill it up, and you know. So, you know, for those times when you need longer range, it's there, but you, you know, you don't even have to really think about it.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and the thing is, I made this comment last night when we were chatting too that the powertrain is not exactly. Subtle, but then I paid a little bit more attention to it today, and there are times where you can hear, you know, the whine of the, the motor and the, the whatever other electronics are doing their, their thing, but it is actually difficult to discern when the gas engine kicks on and off. They've done a really good job about smoothing that out, uh, which in hybrids has been, it's been rougher <laughs> in, in some hybrids, you know, some, some are really good about it, and I think everybody's getting better. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm always a little bit concerned that it's going to feel like the the sort of roughness of the, the most basic stop start systems where it's just like it gets tiresome. You know, you get that that just like thump and then the engine starts up and, and you, you really don't feel it. So they've done a very good job. And I don't I I don't know if it's Chrysler developing a, a system in house or if they've licensed parts of it. You, you probably know.
2: Um, yeah, no. They the system was developed entirely in house, um, and you know one one of the things they did when they were designing this is they designed they designed the dry, the hybrid drive unit to actually fit within the same package envelope as the nine speed ZF automatic that they use on all their their front wheel drive vehicles or, or transverse engine vehicles. So you know theoretically they could they could add this to any of their transverse engine vehicles, you know, including like the compass, um or the um um what else do they have? Uh the Cherokee, the Cherokee. Yeah uh, you know, and, you know, we'll probably actually see hybrid versions of those. So, you know, you could either do a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid version of, of any of those vehicles with this drive unit, just depending on what size battery you put in it. You know, if you put a smaller battery, you could use it as just a regular hybrid or a bigger battery. You could do a plug-in. Um, and you know, we'll, over the next couple of years, we'll, we'll probably start to see some of those come to market.
1: Yeah. And it, like, it's worth it. You know, it's a, Those are good places to put hybrid stuff. I mean, I think about that, like a hybrid Cherokee would probably be pretty popular. (laughs) I hope.
2: Yeah, no, I I think it would do all right. I mean, especially, you know, if you look at, you know, the, you know, some of its competitors, you know, they, you know, Toyota's got the you know both the rav4 and the Highlander available with with hybrid systems in there uh, you know and they're they're fairly popular and you know we're gonna we're gonna see hybrids coming to most SUVs over the next the next four or five years um, from most of the manufacturers uh, you know Ford has already said they're going to offer either hybrids or plug-in hybrids in all of their SUVs you know uh, that are coming to market in the next couple of years so you know including you know even like the Bronco so, you know, I, I think, you know, it would it would behoove Chrysler to do the same thing.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and that's, uh, you know, I think that that's coming regardless of what we, we think about it. Um, the, I so as as a family van, I, I've now had time to sort of appreciate the, the Pacifica and, it, and like it has key sense which I like, but I also don't like because I only have the key sense fob. So I'm I'm locked out of being able to turn the phone and the radio up as far as I might want sometimes so it can be difficult to hear a phone call on the hands free.
2: But oh, is that is that like uh, um like the like right? Ford's, like key. Uh, system. Yeah. There? Okay. So so you can program each key, each individual key uh, for certain things. You know, like so if you've, you know, if you're gonna let your teenage kid drive the vehicle, you can program it to to geofence or or to send you an alert. You know, if they go outside of a particular I, area. Yeah, or, I
1: don't know if it'll do that, but what it what it definitely does is um it limits top speed. To I think the default is to eighty five miles an hour, and the the radio and phone volume are limited, and um, it mutes the audio if the seat belts are not buckled and you you're driving. Um, so it has some of those like safety uh, aspects to it. So it, and it's a good idea. I'm just frustrated because I, I don't have control over it. I entered the
2: wrong pin. <laughs> I'm surprised they programmed it that way and gave you gave you that stuff. Yeah,
1: I, I'm a little surprised. Too.
2: Usually they don't have that stuff turned on by default in the press. But, you
1: know, if there's any group of drivers <laughs> who may benefit <laughs> from having the nannies on. I,
2: I, I didn't say that, that wasn't right. true. I just <laughs> uh,
1: so that like, that's a little fr- it's a good, good thing that I just wish I could override because I'm a control freak. Um <laughs> the uh the adaptive cruise is, is really good. It's good in stop and go. It'll stop itself and then start again, which you know we, we talk about often. Um, but they've they've done the work to make it worthwhile instead of like giving up in a line of traffic. Um the I've got the limited, so it's it's nicely trimmed in inside. Um it has the, the screen, you know, it's really well thought out for like if you've got little people. It's designed to accommodate them and like keep them entertained. It has friggin' it has two screens on the back of the front seats and they have games mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like my, my yeah. kids are playing, I think checkers on it tonight.
2: Yeah. They've, they've, they've actually got games that are built in, you know, so you don't have to download yeah. or stream anything or, or install anything. They're actually built right into the system, which yeah, is pretty and, cool. Like
1: they were so charmed by that. And and like, you know, yes, at it. I guess when you hear it, like what, well, I need a car with video games built in. But let me tell you, it's delightful. <laughs> and um yeah, it's uh the the I guess my biggest complaint and this is sort of across Chrysler now a, a few different Chrysler vehicles I've had have had the latest generation of Uconnect and I don't like what they've done with it.
2: Um why why I mean what what is it you don't like because yeah, you know, I I actually kind of like the the interface they have so on it.
1: So the interface itself is okay, but what they've done is they've They've buried a bunch of important features, at least three, three presses in. Like if you have UConnect in the latest version of UConnect, uh, try to find nav. It's you got to you got to press the button for, for
2: there, there. There's a nav button like there's a, there's a row of icons on the bottom of the, it the home did, screen it didn't have that. across the bottom there.
1: Yeah, really? may, maybe I'll look again,
2: but it's. Do you have, do you have, the oh, no, it, it, has, it has okay. the row
1: of icons, but nav isn't in there. Now you can drag it out and put it in there, but it's not, it, it's not oh, in there.
2: Okay. So some, somebody else must've messed around with the settings. Cause the, uh, the default usually has the net. If it's, if the car has nav, it's usually got that as a default, okay. you know, in that row of that, that home row and across the bottom. So of the what was
1: in there. And, and so that, I guess that's another point though. Like what was in there seemed eminently useful. It had the seat heater controls and, you know, radio, but not media and something like there were things there that felt like, like yeah, okay. I want those to be there. So I can just tap them and, and turn these things on. But, um, the, i replaced one of them with media because radio doesn't get you, you can't switch if you're in the radio, you can't switch to you know USB or Bluetooth or whatever. You, that's like a separate category, which, which seems
2: weird. Um, Isn't there a source button no. right on the uh, on the steering? Oh, wheel? maybe
1: on the steering wheel. There is
2: right on the back. There's yeah. The, I, I got to
1: remember which one there is. So okay. Uh,
2: I think it's on, on the on the back of the left hand spoke. Uh, if you tap middle, that button, yeah. it'll it'll talk. It'll toggle through the uh, through sources uh, through so. through all the different sources. Okay.
1: So. Um, that's easier than trying to find it in the screen. And, uh, I, I guess that again, like that's just my, my biggest gripe is that stuff that was normally there just got buried. And I, I, am assuming that it, it's, it is the default to not have those icons down there because none of the Chrysler vehicles I've driven with this latest Uconnect system have had those icons down there. I would have had to like manually put them there.
2: And while that's great that you can do that, you know, Either that, or some somebody else yeah. in uh, in your region has just been messing. Yeah, well,
1: with you. that's true. I mean, all the cars do
2: come <laughs> with all of the like the the most. I mean, if they tur- if they turned on all the nanny settings, yeah. you know, then then there's a good chance <laughs> that somebody's messing. It with could
1: you. be. It could be. I mean, it, it, it's always amusing to see what radio presets they come with, and like I I think that they they pick like the polar opposite of what they know that I consume in terms of media program into the car and just leave it there so anyway um you know so that like that's kind of a tiny gripe, but also it is again like a, an ongoing point like the systems are not they're not as intuitive as they add features you know earlier you connect systems
2: no that that, that that is true in general you know i think you know When, you know, with the with the the shift towards touch screen systems, you know, because you've got we've got so many features in modern cars that, you know, part of the driving force for touch screens is, you know, so so you get rid of, you know, the the overwhelming number of buttons and and switches, because if you did have physical controls for all this stuff, it would it would be. Right. So instead of an
1: overwhelming number of buttons, though, we get an overwhelming number of pages and icons, (laughs) you know.
2: So maybe, maybe the solution is to just have less stuff Correct, in our cars.
1: but then you can't sell it for profit. <laughs>
2: uh, uh, yeah, there. I guess there is Damn that.
1: Damn it! <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so well. uh, speaking of selling cars and stuff for for profit, let's let's move on to our topics. I've complained enough about minivans. <laughs> um, it's a good van. You could you should buy it. Um, you know what? Like let let's just let's just dive right in. So there's
2: so so. BMW Group has this uh, relatively profitable brand uh, that's part of the group. <laughs> all,
1: I think BMW uh, is all of their brands are relatively profitable. This one in particular.
2: Well, uh, I, yeah, I, I suspect so. Um, you know, Rolls Royce, you know, for, for those who don't know, is actually owned by BMW. Has been since what, 19 or since 1999 uh, or 2000,
1: 1999 2000? Yeah, something like that. It's been been quite a while.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, Rolls Royce has a new model that they introduced uh, today. Uh, you know, they, they did the global launch um, this morning uh, in, in uh, North American time, and um, it's uh, it's an SUV. It's the first ever Rolls Royce SUV, um, and it's it looks like a Rolls, and it's huge. I,
1: yeah, it's the name is the worst part because it's like is it it's the Cullinan or Cullinan or whatever, but like. Right away, I see the name and I think of like the water filtration people, um, and then like <laughs> Mulligan, and it's just I I don't know. Them and Bentley.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's actually uh, named for something that's a little more uh, close to home for for Rolls Royce, you know, which is the uh, the largest ever uh, gem quality uh, rough cut diamond, that, you know, that was found in like 1905. Um, it was a 3100 carat diamond. Um, and uh, so they, they named the, the SUV after a, a big piece of carbon. And, you know, which, which I guess, which I guess is is appropriate for a vehicle is probably going to emit as much CO2 uh, as this thing. Uh, no doubt. will.
1: Excellent. I'm glad that we, we did that, <laughs> that tie in there. Cause if you didn't, I would have, um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, people are going to buy it and it,
2: I, I a, a few, a few hundred people a year, or you know, maybe a thousand people a year. If a thousand
1: people thing. buy it, they're going to be really happy because that's a lot of profit. That's a lot of sales, and, and oh, I yeah. do think that there's demand for it. You know, and uh, I think it's good looking.
2: And, hey, ben- Bentley's selling a the shocking number of Bentagas. I mean, you the
1: Bentaga is awful. It's so ugly. It's so gauche. This is at least like it looks like a proper Rolls.
2: That's true. It it does look like a very tall Rolls Royce, yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's you know it's still got the the six point seven five liter twin turbo V twelve adequate with uh, what five, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's it's no longer adequate. They actually tell you how much power it makes now. You know, which is uh, what five hundred and sixty three, I think, or something like that. Not,
1: that that's adequate. <laughs> yeah. I just the the only Rolls I've ever driven was a uh, was a Phantom, and I just. I was really, I was, I was charmed, I guess, it's not necessarily the right word, but it it was a really unique experience because it has that sort of power reserve, uh, dial and stuff. And, And so it, it, it just, it makes you drive in a different way, I suppose, where we, it's, it's more like driving a boat, I guess, you know?
2: Well, the, the thing about the thing about, you know, the role, especially the phantoms, um, you know, The Phantoms are not driver's cars. They're cars to be driven in. Yeah. No, nobody that actually enjoys driving um, would ever get a Phantom. Yeah, you know, I guess if you want to rolls that you you know prefer to actually take the wheel of yourself, you know, you get a ghost or a wraith or something like that. You know, if you if you have a phantom, you have someone else that does the driving for you. You sit in the way out back, you know, and enjoy that that starscape in the in the headliner, uh, you know, just kick back and relax. And, you know, it, when when you arrive at your destination, if it's raining out, you know, the driver comes around and. You know, opens the door and pulls the pulls the umbrella, the umbrella yeah. out that's that's hidden hidden within the door. You know, and holds it over your head as as you walk into your your uh, meeting or your your you know wherever it is you're going. Um, you know, I mean it it's. You know The time The one time when I drove a Phantom You know It has You know This large diameter Skinny oh, yeah. rim steering wheel I forgot wheel, about that uh, Yeah you know, cl- Classic Rolls Royce You know uh, You know And there's No real You know No real feeling of connection Between the sti- It was like driving You know A, a big American land yacht From the 1950s 1970s It or something, was Except for you know, Or 60s So
1: very you know. Very well assembled Yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, there there is that. Yes, um, I mean the, you know I mean these things are put together like a rock.
1: Yeah, I, you know what like when you start to look over, uh, any rolls and and especially this one, I'm sure it's going to command a premium because it's a new model. But also when you start to look at it and, and a Rolls Royce purchase is an experience. You know, um, in the U S. they tend to spec them before they bring them in. And have some stock of cars, but in other parts of the world, each one is a custom order. So it's not, the dealers aren't ordering them; the people are, and you can you can do that it's, here.
2: But. It's like it's like buying a Savile Row yeah. suit. You know, you you go in and and you. You know, you don't necessarily take your measurements, but, you know, you will see all the samples of the different hides and woods and everything else and all the, the color options. And, you know, if they if you you know, it's it's, you know, also, you know, like uh, buying, you know, a BMW individual right. or, or you know or Porsche, Porsche yeah. or something. You know, if you if you have a if you already have a particular favorite suit and you want the car to match the color of your suit, you know, or a tie or whatever it might be, you know, they will they will happily paint it for you, whatever color you like, you know, for for the money, you know, a suit, a suitable
1: check
2: or wire transfer. Right. And, as,
1: and that's yes, I don't think it, we we as as plebs can can continue to throw rocks at that. But I mean, for some context, like they're expensive cars for
2: for oh, yeah, with and, money. And, you know, Rolls, <laughs> Rolls, Rolls Rolls Royce only builds about two or three thousand cars yeah. a year, so I mean, it's it's not you know these are definitely not for everybody. Uh, I just I find it amusing that you know that they felt that they had to do an SUV. You know, I mean that I think this this is a, this is an indicator of kind of where the total you know the overall vehicle market has gone. I mean, you know, we we talked before about you know Ford discontinuing most of their their passenger car nameplates in North America, you know, and shifting over to SUVs and trucks. Well, I mean, even Rolls Royce is doing. Well, it. yeah, but yeah, I mean, they're so they're still going to build the Phantom. But my my guess is they're probably going to sell more of these ads than they do of Phantoms within the next couple so, of years.
1: Uh, I mean, I gotta think that Rolls, the biggest markets for Rolls, are not the U.S. I would I would say that the U.S. is maybe. Number actually, three. no,
2: Rolls Royce is still the biggest market or the U.S. is still the biggest market. Well, wow, I'm surprised. You, I would
1: assume that the Middle East, but, like Saudi Arabia or something, would be actually one or two. And then China would be, again, one or two. So uh,
2: I think chi- I think China is second behind the U.S. Um, you know, I think the, the Middle East market, you know, is for, you know, for those that want SUVs. Uh, well, you know, I think the the Kulinan will actually probably do really well in the Middle East, you know, as as a as a higher end alternative to you know the Bentega yeah. and and to range rovers yep. um and and mercedes g class or g wagons yeah, and
1: the cayenne yeah. and like uh, all of that stuff it, it that, yeah. it's that stuff is extremely popular there and yeah so and, and i think it'll do well in china too uh you
2: know oh yeah the the, the chinese market's going to be huge you know spe- well and you know places like hong kong and mm. Um, And Macau, you know, they'll be very popular there.
1: Yeah. And the in typical Rolls Royce fashion that the press release has a lot of a lot of hyperbole. (laughs) Was this the car that you most anticipated this year? Uh, No, not at all. I could give a crap whether it comes or goes. (laughs) Uh, So I would say it's the most anticipated Rolls Royce of 2018, but they are saying. It is the most anticipated car of 2018 and quite possibly the most anticipated Rolls Royce of all time, which we have no way of proving because they don't make a time machine and you can't go back and, and ask so they can just make a statement like that. Um, the other thing that stood out was the, the they call it the first three box car in the SUV sector, which I mean, we just saw that Mercedes thing that everybody got all offended by. It was a three box thing.
2: But that's just a concept. Oh, I, I see. This is a this is a production okay. vehicle. All right, I'll give him that. And you know, but even you know, even calling this thing you know a three box vehicle, you know, I mean, you look at this thing in profile, eh, you know, that's that's kind of a, a dubious claim. But you know, then again, in, in the context of everything else that they say about this, I guess it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's got a a slight you know kind of bustle in the back. Um, But I guess there is actually a bulkhead behind the behind the rear seats, you know, so there it makes it you know, it it gives more interior separation. So you don't have the um, the cargo area, you know, as a as an echo chamber for the rest of the the uh, the cabin. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the price tag on this thing starts at two hundred and forty thousand pounds, you know, which is about three hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, I think, right now. Um, you know, but most likely, you know, most of these will be selling for 400,000 and up, you know, and, and, and in many cases, well, well above that 400,000 level, you know, by the time, you know, people get them configured exactly the way they want. Good. Good for them. Like, but it is the, it is the first SUV with suicide doors.
1: Um, those are not suicide doors. What are they called? Uh, coach,
2: uh, coach doors, doors yeah, I believe. I was, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. First, first production SUV <laughs> with coach doors. All right. Yeah. But so that is actually a useful feature. It gets you good access. To uh, the well, interior. Again,
2: again, if, you know, if you are being driven as opposed to doing the driving, it absolutely is a very useful feature. You know, that your, your, your chauffeur can come and open that up. It gives you very easy uh, access to the interior, you know, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's you can get out much more grace right, than you can in and something like right, that. And
1: you know doors. that the people who some of the people who wind up in these things are going to be graceless people. So they need all the help <laughs> they can get. Uh, so the idea of the coach doors, right, is you, you open the front door, the the umbrella's in there, you pop it out, and then you've got the rear door. I guess your 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 cargo or your your passengers are not waiting out in the rain or, I don't know. It was explained to me when I drove the phantom, yeah. in. Like, when they explain it, it all makes perfect sense. Like here's the thinking behind it. And you're like, Oh, okay. I mean, that sounds plausible. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I expect that the materials are going to be astoundingly good. The assembly is going to be just, just, you know, top notch as it, as it should be. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's the right product for them at the right time. Uh, tradition, is you know fine complain about tradition uh rolls versus have always been huge heavy trucks anyway uh and and it kind of doesn't matter like it's like Porsche right get bent out of shape about the new model or you can just go buy the other one that they still make
2: just yeah
1: <laughs> like i don't i don't see why it's bad that there's enough uh, demand. yeah i mean I,
2: i'm I'm not you know i i you know I'm not bent no. out of shape about it you know I just think it's i'm just amusing. yeah i'm just so glad
1: it's not ugly i think it's it's really Really, quite good. Look.
2: That's certainly better than a Pentega. Yeah, I,
1: I despise the Pentega because it's just hideous. Uh, and I mean, you know that it's. I'm sure that they had a lot of requests for this. You know, they wouldn't be building it if they didn't get asked for it. I, I feel, I guess, you know, it's it's kind of like Ferrari, and and again, you know, even Porsche. Like you, 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 you continue to ask them enough for the thing, they're going to make it.
2: And, you know, if you if you offer them a large enough blank check, you know, they'll they'll make one for you anyway. Yeah,
1: like the, what was it, the Bentley Dominator?
2: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's been all kinds of, you know, these bespoke vehicles built over the years for exceedingly rich people.
1: I would like to be an exceedingly rich person. The cars <laughs> I would commission, it would be so very interesting.
2: Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> I can just I can just imagine the custom Crown Victoria you would order. <laughs> it would be
1: very flat I mean, because to get melted down. Uh, uh,
2: yeah. I don't know. Well, speaking 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 of premium brands uh, that are, you know, that are perhaps not quite as successful in some respects as uh, Rolls Royce has been uh, over the last couple of decades. Um, Cadillac, yeah, <clears throat> um, you know, Cadillac has made some extraordinarily good cars in the last couple of decades. Um, And particularly in this decade, you know, the, um, and, you know, one of my, one of my personal favorites is the ATS and it's going away. Uh, I mean, you know, there's been rumors about this for a while, but uh, it's unfortunately going to bite the dust at the end of the 2018 model. Well, I think you,
1: but you said it, you know, Cadillac has made some extraordinarily great cars and that I think that's
2: but but nobody right. wants cars. That's
1: part of the problem is they've made cars and they're just now catching up with the you know the the XT five and I, they're going to have the
2: XT four. You
1: know they're they're getting there, but they kind of missed.
2: Yeah, uh, you know that the the timing was just the timing was off. You know they came out with great cars just as everybody was turning away from cars, um, and I guess what what's going to happen is the The ATS and uh, there's going to be a replacement for the the, a single replacement for both the ATS and the CTS coming in 2019. Um, And so they're they're ending production of the ATS this summer. um, And then the they'll be retooling the plant. uh, And then next year they will launch uh, what I believe is going to be the CT five. That's that's what the rumor I've heard is the CT five will be the the new uh, midsize sedan that'll kind of take over both the CTS and ATS, uh, space, which is, which is unfortunate. Because, like I said, you know, they, especially the ATS V, but even, even the, uh, the, the four cylinder, the two liter four cylinder turbo, uh, base ATS, you know, is a great car. Um, you know, and it, you know, they, they, they did some fantastic stuff with that, you know, really fun to drive, um, uh, and, I, you know, for for me personally, I, you know, I find it to be just the right size. I mean, if you're if you like, you know, a car, you know, a smaller sedan, you know, like the size of a three series, um, you know, or a Mercedes C-Class, you know, I think the ATS is, is you know, it looks fantastic and it drives really well.
1: Yeah. It, it's all that stuff is still available, though. You just you have to get a Camaro.
2: <laughs> that's true yeah um for for now at least it's available but yeah the camaro is on the same platform um you know but you know at least the cts or the or the ats you know when you sit in that one you can actually see that's out true of it. I, I i think the and and visibility you know there there are advantages to having exterior visibility there are
1: for sure And i mean the, the ats is is quite a bit more understated than the, the camaro which it looks really good but it it's possibly more of a statement than everybody wants to make. Um, The, the other kind of issue I had with the ATS was like, was it really as premium as it needed to be? You know, I I heard a lot of complaints about the, the quality of the interior materials and, and uh, sort of just how, how more, how, how far removed up the food chain it felt from you know, other GM brands, maybe it wasn't quite as, as good as a C-Class in that respect or a three
2: series. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the three series, you know, it's not Yeah, the three great. series can feel cheap
1: yeah. inside too.
2: Yeah. I mean, especially the, the lower end three series. Um, you know, I, I, I think it was probably, I think it was, you know, as good as the uh, the German competitors, but, and like I said, certainly the driving experience was great.
1: Yeah, well, again, like you just Camaro.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I you know Cadillac Cadillac is, is still got kind of a, a, a little ways to go. Uh they they keep shooting themselves in the foot too. Like, why why would you not stick with CTS? They they've spent now fifteen years? Trying to establish CTS as a as a name? Uh why would you walk away from that and roll out CT5, which looks like CTS anyway? What the hell, guys? Pick one nameplate and stick with it. <laughs>
2: we yeah, well, we've had the three series yeah.
1: for how many generations of three series? Since since the E twenty eight?
2: Maybe, maybe now that Johan has left the building, um, maybe they will you know, reverse course and do that. I mean, anyway. I
1: think this is it's it's also part of what they've the the problem that and it's not just Cadillac, but most of the domestic brands have continued to do this with when it comes to small cars. Uh, you know, you've had the Corolla since what nineteen sixty something. In mm-hmm. that time, there's been.
2: You know, you had what, like? Well, at Ford, at Ford let's see, we've gone through the Pinto, Pinto the Escort. Escort, the Focus. Uh, seems like there was something, something else in there too. Yeah,
1: that, I mean, that's not too bad,
2: but, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um,
1: GM did the. They did the. The I, I guess you could say the Cheve, well the Vega, right?
2: Well, we, yeah, we had GM. You had the Vega. You had the Cavalier, um, the Cobalt, uh, now the Cruise. Uh, there was also the, the ship, the Nova, you right. know, which was it's the, the uh, which was a Corolla, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's still too many, you know, the, I think the, the problem there is, you know, most of the older those the older variants of those cars were not right that great. so they get tainted and they didn't have a particularly yeah they, they were tainted brands and and so you know the they decided okay we need you know now we've got something that's much better so we've got to come up you know we've got to give it a new name you know to disassociate it from the the bad right. stuff that we but built i think before. that's
1: wrong i think that that's like you've established a name for better or for worse the name sticks so then you 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 can, everybody knows your car. So then you can say, yes, we've made it better. (laughs) Like, come back. It's just like name recognition is so hard to build. It just, and and so that's like, okay, fine. Get rid of the ATS because nobody could make sense of ATS,
2: CTS. Well, you know, and the other other problem too is, um, you know, with these alphanumeric names, they don't have any real meaning. I mean, you know, you look at, especially if you, for example, you look at Acura, you know, you got the ILX, the TLX, the RLX. What, what do those mean? Or Lincoln, you know, is definitely, they were the worst offender of this, you know, everything started with the MK. You had, you know, MKC, MKZ, MKT, MKX. Um, You know, they're, they've finally abandoned that and they're going back to to regular names again uh, for all their models going forward. Um, But, you know, it, I think, Part, part of the reason why, you know, manufacturer, at least in the premium segments, went to alphanumeric names is, um, you know, especially as they were trying to compete in China, trying to uh, come up with true, names, yeah. um, you know, that would translate well, you know, or competing in global markets, coming up with names that uh, wouldn't offend anybody. I, no, that's that's actually really <laughs> hard. That's, that's happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you come, you know, uh, you know, like Buick, for example, with the lacrosse. Uh, yeah. So that's like an uh,
1: apocryphal story. Is that actually, a, well, you're from Canada. Is that actually a slang term in Canada? Uh,
2: apparently it is in Quebec. Oh, okay. I didn't grow up in Quebec, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't um, say, uh, but they, they ended up using a different name for uh, the car in, in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, there, there have been there have been other cases. Honda. Of names. Honda
1: Fit in Sweden.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's why they call it the Jazz there. <laughs> yep. Um, and, and yeah, so. it, that that's actually it's it's amusing, but it's it is difficult. So I, I guess I get the point to a certain degree about the, the names, um, but or the alphanumerics. But there's got to be a solution. For you could just name it something else in that market, you know. Mm-hmm
2: yeah uh you know that that's that i mean that's what you know honda has done for example with you know with the fit and the jazz you yeah. know in, in europe it's called the jazz and everywhere else in the world it's. it called sounds the so
1: easy from the armchair here it's it's just it's comfortable yeah. and it's just simple to say like just give it different names like what could possibly yeah so i'm sure there's a reason why they're trying to maybe not do that but
2: yeah so uh let's see what else oh um, Uber, <laughs> <laughs> we, we haven't, we haven't talked about Uber for a couple of weeks. Um,
1: yeah. Is this, is this basically like a textbook trolley problem thing?
2: Um, no, oh, okay. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think it's more of just, they screwed up big time. Um, You know, so, you know, what uh, what some news came out this week, Uh, Uber acknowledged that the uh, the car that hit the pedestrian in in Tempe, Arizona, about a month or so ago and and killed her. Um, From their analysis, uh, they determined that the system, the autonomous driving system did, in fact, recognize that there was a, a human pedestrian crossing the street in front of the car, but. You know, so the, the way the way these things work, you know, you've got multiple layers in the in the software. You know, the, the first the first layer is the perception system. You know, that's where the sensors detect everything around the vehicle and then try to classify all the objects, um, you know, as to what they are, whether it's a pedestrian or a vehicle or an animal, um, you know, or some static object. Uh, and then. You know, that gets fed into the the control system and the path planning system, um, you know, where it decides, OK, based on what I see in my my path and where I need to go, you know, what you know, what should I do? Should I stop? Should I accelerate? Should I go around? Should I make a turn? Um, and that's where uh, a, a According to uh, Uber, the, the system went wrong. So it actually did classify the woman correctly as a pedestrian. But then it decided that we're and we don't know why yet, you know, whether it thought it was a false positive or, you know, or what was going on. But for whatever reason, it decided that it did not actually need to slow down or make an evasive maneuver, despite the fact that it had recognized that as, as a person crossing so the street. That's
1: um, worse. <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know that it's necessarily better or worse. It's just you know, it it's kind of it starts to narrow down where the problem is in the okay. software. Uh, cer- certainly, you know, I think it's it's an indication that you know they their system was not. I don't think ready to be used on public roads. Well, yeah, you know, I think it need it needed more development, more te- more validation. You know, on test tracks before you put it on onto public roads. And, th- you know, this is one of the fundamental problems with, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the tech companies, um, Google or Waymo excluded in that, you know, they they, you know, they'd rather get stuff out there. And, you know, Tesla, I think, falls into this category. They want to put stuff out there, you know, and you know do the move fast and break things approach you know and iterate quickly and you know keep trying to make it better but you know that's that's fine you know when you're just doing you know regular software but you know in a case like this where human lives are at risk we can't afford to do that we need to verify this stuff before you put it on the road so and
1: that's i I think that's why i say it's worse because not detecting it i guess it, it would be bad But having the system sort of backed off to avoid false positives, like they didn't train it enough in situations where like the stakes were lower and that, uh, you know, like you talk about doing the simulations, like if you're running virtual training for the the AI, it's going to get smarter. Like just this situation. Yes, there were a lot of variables and it was complicated for it to figure it out, but it it sounds like the the real culprit. And I'm glad they're they're narrowing it down, but it sounds like the real culprit was that it was it had backed off the the reactivity, so that.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we we don't actually know, you know, how um, how Uber's software was structured in this case, because you know, there's different approaches. You know, what what a lot of companies uh, that are doing this stuff are doing is they're they're using the machine learning. Uh, approach for the perception system and and the object classification, um, but when it comes to the actual uh, control, the vehicle control and the path planning part of it, um, they're going back to and and again this does not apply to everybody, you know, because most companies are not saying exactly what they're doing, but in a lot of cases, you know, companies that I've talked to are. Um, you know, for the, the control and the path planning, they're using more traditional rules based approaches um, or, or using a hybrid of the two, using a combination of machine learning and uh, deterministic rules based approaches. So, you know, when you know that in the rules based approach, you know, you would if you've detected that there's an object in your path, then you're going to do this. You know, it's it's not relying on an A.I. or, you know, a neural network to make that decision, it's taking, it's a different kind of software architecture and we don't know what Uber was doing. So, you know, it's possible that, you know, they were using a machine learning approach, uh, but it's possible that it was a more traditional, uh, classic type of software approach and they just screwed it up, you know? So it may have been that it wasn't trained properly if it was an AI approach or it may have been, you know, just that a human messed it up, um, you know, in a, in a more traditional fashion. Yeah. Either way, either way, either way is bad. I guess. Either way, you need to you need to validate it more and and really make sure this the system is working reliably. Uh, But you know, they did, and clearly they didn't do that.
1: Are they going to do that now? Like, where do they go from here?
2: (laughs) Um, You know, there's another story uh, this evening. came out, um, yesterday, uh, Uber's, uh, C- new CEO, Derek Kosher uh, said yesterday that they're going to resume testing of their cars in a few months. So there's, they're still not doing any testing, any public road testing with their systems. So I think right now what they're doing is they're going through and, and reevaluating their, their whole development process and, you know, and, and looking at what they've done and, you know, to make, to try to make sure that, you know, this doesn't happen again. And I, you know, hopefully, you know, they're they're doing a thorough job of it. And and hopefully, you know, they will, when they do get back to testing that, you know, they will have, um, you know, put some some different uh, processes and procedures in place to, so this doesn't happen again. But, you know, I'm sure that this won't be the last fatal accident that we have with autonomous vehicles. Uh, you know, that's, you know, that's something that's never going to go away. I mean, you know, one of the, and, you know, in, in many, in many cases, you know, many of the accidents involving these vehicles may not even be the fault of these vehicles. Like there, you know, there was another, uh, there was a Waymo vehicle that was involved in, a, in an accident last week, um, in Arizona that, uh, you know, it was in no way the fault of the autonomous system because, in fact, it was a human driver that was approaching from the opposite direction and ran a red light, and then you know swerved to avoid a, a vehicle that was crossing an intersection, you know, correctly against a green light. He the the other driver had run a red light, swerved, and lost control, and it jumped a median and ran into the side of one of Uber's vans, uh, autonomous vans that was uh, was driving. Um, down down the street in the opposite direction and you know, those, those are the kinds of things that are gonna happen and you know there's not much that you can do about it.
1: Yeah, and it, I don't, I don't know I mean I, I guess that it's gonna get better and maybe the more of this stuff that, that happens, because it's so novel now, we're hearing about every crash. We're hearing about every friggin Tesla that crashes still for crying out loud. like after a while, um, those will those things will, I guess, become more I, maybe less frequent and more mundane at the same time, I guess if that makes sense, um, where it's just like, yeah, that's kind of, you know, trains crash. so that sometimes gets reported breathlessly, but other times it's just like it doesn't, you know.
2: Yeah, I think I think, you know, the thing that we've got to watch out for going forward is, you know, kind of the frequency of these incidents, yeah. you know, based on, you know, how, how often does it happen versus how many miles we actually drive um, or or that these vehicles are driving, you know. And right now, um, it still seems, at least with certain companies, it still seems to be happening at a higher rate than with human drivers. And, you know, we'll see we'll see if that gets better.
1: Yeah. I just hope that they make the machines better instead of making the drivers worse. I think they're they're doing a good job at the latter.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, cer- certainly, I think, you know, a lot of the, the uh, more advanced driver assist systems that we're seeing today, the level two systems um, probably are making human drivers worse.
1: Awesome. Boy, we have a great yeah. future to look forward to. Uh, what else is on our list?
2: Uh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, Waymo participated in the, uh, the big keynote at the Google Mm IO conference in, uh, in Mountain View this week. And, uh, their CTO, um, showed off a a little clip, uh, showing how the the progress they're making in, in being able to drive in snow. Uh, they started doing some testing in, in Michigan this went this past winter and, um, they're using their machine learning algorithms to be able to filter out the snowflakes, um, you know, that the sensors are detecting.
1: Oh, I Uh, heard them talking about this. This isn't the first time they've at least mentioned it.
2: Yeah. I mean, what, you know, one, one of the issues with, you know, with a lot of these sensors, especially the LIDAR sensors is when there's snow or rain, uh, you know, the, the laser pulses will actually reflect off of the raindrops or snowflakes. And so what you get, you know, the, the image you get back is, you know, it thinks that there's an object there. And so you end up getting this very noisy signal. Um, And so what they're, what they're doing is they're, you know, through their um, sensor fusion, you know, combining the images from the views from all the different types of sensors. And this is why it's key to have multiple different kinds of sensors that have different capabilities. They're using that, you know, with their machine learning algorithms to say, okay, that dot that I just picked up there with the lidar, that's actually a raindrop or a snowflake, and so I'm going to ignore that and you know look for the other objects that are you know within the field of view, and you know they they showed something that looked looked pretty impressive. You know you know how how effective it actually is in the real world remains to be seen, and how consistent it can do that um, you know is still a big question, but you know there's certainly They're certainly starting to think about this stuff, you know, because if, you know, if you're ever going to have automated vehicles, you know, working in places like Chicago or New York um, or other places, you know, outside of Arizona and California where, you know, where we actually have you know, real weather, um, you know, you're going to have to figure out these problems. And, you know, up until now, they they haven't, but, you know, they seem to be making progress.
1: It's really hard. To drive oh, yeah it's snow. not a trivial like, problem and that like yeah. there's so many variables and it, it it sounds like it shouldn't be that difficult but when people who drive in snow or when you're experienced at it there's a lot of stuff you're you're balancing you know and you' there's just sort of a lot of innate understanding that you have that I it, that it's gonna take them a while to figure that out to make machines do it
2: yeah yeah, you know, there's there's things there's things that, you know, humans can are actually surprisingly good at, um, you know, in terms of being able to perceive what's out there. Uh, you know, I mean, as long as we've got some degree of visibility, you know, through the rain or snow, you know, seeing other vehicles, you know, we're, we're actually pretty good at classifying stuff. Um, and it's it's actually a really hard problem to do with with uh, software and sensors.
1: Yeah. So there. Take that, machines!
2: All right, <laughs> one 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 last one is uh, uh, battery fires. Uh, you know the the National Transportation Safety Board started yet another investigation into Tesla after another where, crash.
1: Yet another crash
2: after another. Yet crash. Yet again,
1: made the news. But this one,
2: <laughs> yeah, but th- this this one I, I'm pretty sure had nothing to do with autopilot uh, because uh, assuming that the police report is accurate, which we can't actually guarantee at this point. Um, you know, it was a 2014 Model S, which would be before they actually had uh, autopilot available. So, if if that if it is in fact a 2014 and it didn't have autopilot, then you know this the the cause of the crash uh, would seem to be uh, young male driver syndrome, <laughs> uh, because you know it was a, an 18 year old high school senior uh, driving the Model S at. Based on based on the reports, uh was allegedly going through a residential area at a very high rate of speed, uh, lost control, crashed into a wall and uh, then burst into flames. Um, but why the reason why the NTSB is looking at this and apparently, you know, possibly also going, you know, expanding what they're looking at with the uh, the March crash in California, uh, where uh, autopilot uh, was the cause of the crash. Uh, is the fact that the in both cases the batteries caught fire? You know, after the impact, and they were actually really hard to well, extinguish. And yeah, th- you know, this is this is a known problem with it, lithium ion it, batteries. Is trying to extinguish yeah, the fires.
1: I mean, it's not just just lithium ions. Lithium ions are, are particularly bad with it too. Like batteries, that they may seem benign, but they are they are little. Package or, or large packages of uh, potential chemical runaway reactions, you know, like runaway chemical reactions. If you crash and the batteries get broken and the the, the you know, the stuff mixes together, you're you're going to have a fire and it's going to be hard to put out, uh, it, you know, and there's there's not a whole lot you can do with that either. You know, you can't really put out a lithium ion battery fire all that effectively. Right. I mean, maybe foam.
2: Yeah. Well, but there, there's, you know, there's actually an even bigger problem in that, um, you know, depending on what happens to the batteries in the impact or the cells in the entering the impact is you may, it may appear that you've put the fire out and then it may spontaneously reignite. Um, And this, this is apparently what happened, you know, in the, the March crash, um, actually several days after the crash, when, when the vehicle was at a wrecking yard or, or something, you know, it had been removed from the accident scene. Um, you know, the, the battery reignited. Um, and this is actually, you know, this is not the first time this has happened. And not just with, with a Tesla back in 2011, after, uh, GM had originally launched the, uh, the Chevy Volt, uh, there was an accident in, uh, in Connecticut with, uh, a, a garage that caught on fire. You know, there yeah, was a I remember that. Charging yeah. in it. it, it there wasn't there was no crash. You know, and the the original cause of the fire, uh, I believe, was actually due to um, uh, some bad a bad DIY installation of uh, an EV charger in the garage. Um, and you know the car was just sitting in the garage. You know, um, and you know so there was there was an electrical fire that started to consume the vehicle and consume the garage. But um, after the vehicle had been taken away, a few days later, you know, it was at the, the wrecking yard and the battery started smoldering again. Um, so this this is this is actually a, a known problem, you know, trying to make sure that it you know, not only does the fire get put out, but that it stays out. And so this is what NTSB is taking a look at with this fire yesterday, um, you know, that, you know, apparently, you know, when they thought they had it out, you know, it kept reigniting itself. And, you know, more more parts of the battery kept uh, igniting. And so, you know, th- this is this is something that we're going to have to resolve with EVs uh, before we get too much further down well, the line.
1: One of the solutions that we were talking about earlier, uh, you had mentioned solid state batteries and they're, they're still kind of in the R&D phase. But um, it, it seems like a promising way to at least minimize some of this this risk. With the chemistry uh, turning into a fire that, that you can't put out.
2: Yeah, the, the, the problem lies in the electrolyte and the batteries, um, you know, because it's an organic compound um, and, you know, oxygen actually gets produced and, and will feed the fire, you know, and the electrolyte will, will burn and it, it can be self-sustaining. And, you know, one of the advantages to so-called solid state batteries, you know, is that rather than having a liquid electrolyte, uh, in the battery, um, they, uh, they have, uh, a solid, a solid state, uh, electrolyte, you know, that, um, that goes between the, the, uh, positive and negative electrodes in the battery. The problem with, with these things you know is while they're very stable, um, no one has yet figured out how to produce these things in volume. So they can produce small sample cells that provide very good performance, but nobody's been able to scale it up Enough to make a big battery to actually that can actually power a car. Um, Fisker is claiming that their new EV is going to be you know launching in 2020 with solid state batteries, but um, you know I'll I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, you know, and in the meantime, you know Dyson. You know their their EV project was supposed to use solid state battery technology from uh, an Ann Arbor based startup called Sakti Three that they acquired a couple of years ago, but apparently they have abandoned that work as well. Um, and maybe going with uh, a more conventional battery for now but so we'll we'll see you know if and when you know i, I was at a conference last week and there was quite a bit of discussion of solid-state batteries um, and you know nobody's quite sure you know when they're going to arrive there's been reports that t- uh, toyota is going to launch solid-state batteries around 2022 and some new EVs. Uh, but <clears throat> there are others who think that you know it's still at least a good 10 years off before we have any mass-produced solid solid state batteries yeah, well,
1: just the whole idea is still confusing to me like so you've got to store the electrons in, in silicon like essentially like that's that's what it says to me even though it's not that's not really what it is like that's what i think like you're, you're storing electrons in silicon as the electrolyte and, and that's it, not, it's not exactly it but it, that seems really difficult to solve
2: yeah it's, it's a yeah it's it 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 is a challenging problem you know the most of the solid state electrolytes are not as conductive as the liquid or polymer electrolytes that we use today and so that you know that makes it more challenging to get higher power batteries uh that way so we'll we'll see what happens but it's you know it's it's not going to be uh it's not going to be trivial to to solve this problem of battery reignition i
1: have a solution it's no less dangerous plutonium (laughs) That's,
2: that's yeah, what could 2020? go wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, all right. I think yeah, that's enough. I think for we've, tonight.
1: we've done a good podcast. Um, we didn't publicize yeah. this episode, so we don't have any questions, do we? We don't have any feedback or anything. Uh,
2: not that I'm aware of, and you know, we've already been going an hour and a half, so I think that's enough for this week.
1: All right. Well, thanks for uh, listening. We will catch everybody next week. Feel free to drop us a line and uh, we'll catch you again
3: next time. See ya. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.